Open God's holy word to the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 2. Jeremiah chapter 2. The word of Yahweh came to me saying, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. Thus says Yahweh. I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness, in a land not sown. Israel was holy to Yahweh, the first fruits of his harvest. All who ate of it incurred guilt. Disaster came upon them, declares Yahweh. Hear the word of Yahweh, O house of Jacob, and all the clans of the house of Israel. Thus says Yahweh, What wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? They did not say, Where is Yahweh who brought us up from the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness in a land of deserts and pits, and a land of drought and deep darkness, and a land where none passes through, where no man dwells. And I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things. But when you came in, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. The priest did not say, where is Yahweh? Those who handle the law did not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that do not profit. Therefore, I still contend with you, declares Yahweh, and with your children's children I will contend. For cross to the coast of Cyprus and see, or send to Kedar and examine with care. See if there has been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares Yahweh. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Is Israel a slave? Is he a homeborn servant? Why then has he become a prey? The lions have roared against him. They have roared loudly. They have made his land a waste. His cities are in ruins without inhabitant. Moreover, the men of Memphis and Tophanes have shaved the crown of your head. Have you not brought this upon yourself by forsaking Yahweh your God when he led you in the way? And now what do you gain by going to Egypt to drink the waters of the Nile? Or what do you gain by going to Assyria to drink the waters of the Euphrates? Your evil will chastise you and your apostasy will reprove you. Know and see that it is evil and bitter for you to forsake Yahweh your God. The fear of me is not in you, declares Lord Yahweh of hosts. For long ago I broke your yoke and burst your bonds, but you said... I will not serve. Yes, on every high hill and under every green tree you bowed down like a whore. Yet I planted you a choice vine, holy of pure seed. 
How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? Though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the Lord Yahweh. How can you say, I'm not unclean, I've not gone after the bells? Look at your way in the valley. Know what you have done. A restless young camel running here and there, a wild donkey used to the wilderness in her heat sniffing the wind. Who can restrain her lust? None who seek her need weary themselves. In her month they will find her. Keep your feet from going unshod and your throat from thirst. But you said, It is hopeless, for I have loved foreigners, and after them I will go. As a thief is shamed when caught, so the house of Israel shall be shamed. They say, Their kings, their officials, their priests, and their prophets, who say to a tree, You are my father. And to a stone, you gave me birth, for they have turned their back to me and not their face. But in the time of their trouble, they say, Arise and save us. But where are your gods that you made for yourself? Let them arise if they can save you in your time of trouble. For as many as your cities are your gods, O Judah, Why do you contend with me? You have all transgressed against me, declares Yahweh. In vain have I struck your children. They took no correction. Your own sword devoured your prophets like a ravening lion. And you, O generation, behold the word of Yahweh. Have I been a wilderness to Israel? Or a land of thick darkness? Why then do my people say, We are free. We will come no more to you. Can a virgin forget her ornaments or a bride her attire? Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. How well do you direct your course to seek love, so that even to the wicked women you have taught your ways? Also on your skirts is found the lifeblood of the guiltless poor. You did not find them breaking in. Yet in spite of all these things you say, I am innocent, surely his anger has turned from me. Behold, I will bring you into judgment for saying, I have not sinned. How much you go about changing your way. You shall be put to shame by Egypt as you were put to shame by Assyria. From it too you will come away with your hands on your head. For Yahweh has rejected those in whom you trust. And you will not prosper by them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, grant us forgiveness. I pray that before we would see the guilt so explicit in this passage upon any other, we would see it falling upon our own souls. So give us grace to humbly hear Your Word, but also as repentant, broken sinners seeking to be faithful to You, to boldly declare Your Word. 
In Christ's name, amen. God now, through His prophet, summons His people to trial. The phrase that the ESV has as go and proclaim in the hearing is more strictly rendered by the King James as go, cry in the ears. You see the repeated emphasis of the word of Yahweh proclaiming, crying out, thus says Yahweh. There's a summons to court here. When you're indicted by Yahweh, you need to know that the one who is prosecuting you is also the judge. And this speaks no injustice, and that's exactly your dread. Because there's no hope of buying him off. There's no hope of of twisting things in your favor. There's no hope of putting a spin on your sin. The only plea to sensibly enter is guilty. Your only hope is to plead the grace and the mercy of the judge and repent of your folly. Yahweh opens this case by recalling their past faithfulness. And and here we learn that the one being prosecuted by Yahweh is His bride. He recalls her devotion in her youth, her love as a bride. The word for devotion here is that rich Hebrew word that we encounter so often, hased, that speaks of covenant love and loyalty, unfailing, unending covenant love and loyalty. It's that word that you see recur again and again, translated as steadfast love in the 136th Psalm, where it's repeated 26 times that the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. He recalls her past devotion, how as a bride she followed him in the wilderness. And you may be thinking, yes, but was Israel not rebellious throughout their wilderness wandering? Well, perhaps this is referring more so to that second generation that he would bring into the promised land. But I think more so the idea is he's referring to those early years whenever Israel's stubbornness, sin was not so brazen and hardened and grotesque and vile as it is at this point in their history. Israel was holy to Yahweh. She was separate. She was His and no other. She was the first fruits of His redeeming work. The the first fruits of the harvest were dedicated, according to the law, to Yahweh. And he's saying here as people that he's redeemed are the first fruits. They're his. They're dedicated to him. There are no others. And disaster would come upon any who tried to eat of that which was his. He is beautifully jealous and protective of his bride. And now the summons comes again as the prosecution begins to bring forth the case. Verse 4, hear the word of Yahweh, O house of Jacob, and all the clans of Israel. Thus says Yahweh. And the sins began with their fathers, verse 5. The opening question put to the defendant, what wrong, the word wrong could be translated, what 
injustice, what iniquity. What wrong did your fathers find in me? They, they went far from me. They go away from Yahweh and they go after worthlessness, which is a literal rendering of a word used to speak of idols. They would readily understand idols, but the word meant that which is worthless. They went after worthlessness and became worthless. What kind of infidelity did, that, did you find in me that you became unfaithful? But it's put more strikingly than, than that. That's the idea. But whenever he says they went after worthless and became worthless, this is a principle we see throughout Scripture as G.K. Bill unfolds. We become what we worship. Here's the way it's put negatively concerning idolatry in Psalm 115. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see, ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. Those who trust in idols become blind and deaf, unseeing and feeling. They become senseless. They become worthless. The question is rhetorical. What wrong did your fathers find in me? Whenever you are before this judge, it is best to make no reply. Simply hang your head in shame and guilt whenever such questions are posed. God goes on to answer the question. They didn't find any. Verses 6 through 7. Israel didn't ask, Where is Yahweh who brought us up from the land of Egypt? He guided them by pillar of cloud and fire. He provided manna from heaven, water from the rock. Their clothes did not wear, their shoes did not wear out. And He brought them into a land of plenty. They didn't have any premise upon which to look back at their past and now at their present and ask, where is Yahweh who brought us through such a wilderness? He brought them into this land that was an echo of Eden, verse 7. You see, it's to, de- to hang with the imagery that's being developed most predominantly through this passage. It's as a bridegroom bringing his bride to the home he's prepared for her. This rich and beautiful land. And what does she do? She defiles the wedding bed. He, she makes this heritage an abomination. Now at this point, God brings His case to bear heavy upon the leaders in verse 8. The priests don't say... Do not say, where is Yahweh? Those who handle the law did not know me. Whenever they ask, where is Yahweh? This could be in the same sense as previously. They couldn't say, where is Yahweh? Because He dwelt in the place where they ministered. Or it could be saying, they didn't seek Him. They didn't ask, where is He? But regardless, they don't know Yahweh. They who are entrusted with teaching God's law don't know the law, don't know the God of the law they teach. 
You remember how often Jesus put the question to the Pharisees, have you not read in the law? Or in one instance, He spoke to the Jews saying, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about Me, yet you refuse to come to Me that you may have life. So for the priests, then the shepherds were told, transgressed against Yahweh. Now shepherds could broadly refer to leadership, but most commonly it has the narrow definition of speaking of kings, rulers. So we have the priest and then the kings are addressed. The kings who are entrusted with being the instrument of Yahweh's rule of His people rebel against Yahweh's rule. They transgress His law. And then the prophets prophesied by Baal. And they go after that which does not profit. You see, again, they're turning to worthlessness. Now, in God's court, every man will have to give an account for his own sin. But God lays chief responsibility where it chiefly lies, with the leaders. You remember whenever Eve sinned in the garden, God's questions were first addressed to Adam. And likewise here, the brunt of this is brought explicitly to bear in this case upon the leaders. The shepherds, the priests, the prophets. The church today is full of infidelity. Woe to the pastors who as priests speak to the flock of God saying, Peace, when there is no peace. Woe to the overseers who as kings lead their people into idolatry. Woe to the elders who as prophets call evil good and good evil. The church has been unfaithful because her Hophni and Phineas's are dipping in the pot to feed their own bellies. The church has been unfaithful because our Solomons have many wives that have turned their hearts astray. The church has been unfaithful because our Zedekiahs strike any Micaiahs on the cheek, asking, where did the Spirit of God go from me? Unto you. Condemning any message of judgment and speaking a false message of triumph. For this reason, these reasons, God contends with Israel and her children, verse 9. He contends with them, and the reasons that He contends lie both before and after, verse 9. Therefore I contend with you. So therefore, looking back, the reasons He contends with them are because of their defiling the land, their unfaithfulness, and two, because of the priest and the shepherds and the prophets and how they've led the people into evil. But then verse 10 begins with four. 
So the following verses begin to expound further reasons why Israel contends with them. He contends with her because she has changed her glory, verse 11, for that which does not profit. Made in the image of God, to reflect God, redeemed by God, to reflect God, she turns from reflecting the beauty and brilliance and glory of God to that which is nothing. And so you see how she has her worth as she's a reflection of God's glory and she turns to that which is worthless and in reflecting it becomes herself worthless. She pawns the diamond of Yahweh for some cheap piece of plastic. And this is so appalling because not even the pagan nations do such a thing. Verses 10 and 11. The deities of this world may get a name change. They may get a makeover. But essentially they remain the same. Lust has always been worshipped. Be she Asherah, Aphrodite, or Actress. It's the same God being worshipped essentially. They don't change their gods in this sense. But Israel demonstrates a kind of sinfulness that not even the pagans commit. The greatest sins are not those that are shamefully committed in the dark, but that are brazenly acted out in the light. The greatest sins happen inside of buildings labeled church. Matthew 10, Matthew 11, excuse me, we read, Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Zidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and in ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Zidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You would be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, they would have remained until this day. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Greater light brings greater responsibility. The pagans sin against the light of the sun of our solar system. But those in the visible church sin against the light of the revelation of the sun who is the Lord of the cosmos. The professing church's sin exceeds that of Israel. Israel's sin exceeds the pagans. The professing church's sin exceeds that of Israel. Hebrews opens telling us, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. 
And it's because of the preciousness of this revelation that's come in Christ that the author of Hebrews goes on to plead so earnestly that his readers not turn from Christ. As he explains, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which He was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? Stating yet again His contention in a different way, verse 12, He says that His people have committed two evils. They've forsaken Him, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves that can hold no water. And you notice that in the first instance that we've looked at since verse 10, in the first instance, the pagan nations, as it were, were brought forth as witnesses to testify against Israel. Here, the heavens are brought forth. And in their reaction to hearing what Israel's done, her sin is testified against. He calls for the heavens to be appalled, to be shocked at this. You see, it's the same sin being unfolded. She has exchanged her glory, that is, forsaken the fountain of living waters, and she has exchanged it for that which does not profit, a broken cistern that can hold no water. She rejects a glorious Creator for a ridiculous creation of her own hands. Churches are full of manufactured glory because we have forsaken our glorious God. It is because our churches are Ichabod that we put on such productions. Instead of being in awe of the light of the glory of God as revealed in the face of Jesus Christ in His Word, we have a cheap manufactured light show. Instead of being in awe of the drama of God's redemption, we put on our own dramas to the glory of man. Instead of congregational songs praising, centering on the timeless attributes of God, we ape the world's concerts in a futile quest to gain the favor of the fickle God of cool. God's next questions, question sets the witness up to see that her current chastisement proves Yahweh's contention. Verse 14. Is Israel a slave? Is he a homeborn servant? She'll reply readily, no. She was a slave and God redeemed her out of Egypt to serve Him. She's not a slave. 
Ancient slaves were most often gained, initially at least, by conquest. And so if she's not a slave, he asks, why then has she become a prey? Prey to what? To these lions roaring against her that make the land a waste. Now the lion is most likely a reference to Assyria, an image associated with them. But then we also see verse 15 that Memphis and Tophanes have shaved the crown of her head. This is also a sign, sign of a symbol of being enslaved. And Israel has brought this enslavement on herself by forsaking Yahweh. Forsaking Yahweh, and then she goes to drink of the waters of the Nile or the waters of the Euphrates. She forsakes the fountain of living waters to drink of the polluted waters of the pagans that cannot satisfy. Instead of finding refuge in Yahweh, she turns to those who oppress her for relief from her oppression. The punishment for her sin is her sin. Your evil will chastise you. Your apostasy will reprove you. Sin carries its own punishment. The wages of sin is death. Sin is turning from a fountain of living waters to a broken cistern. Now the ultimate judgment and active wrath of God will fall upon all sin, all sinners. But immediately in the very act, sin carries its own punishment and and consequence. Whether or not you're aware with it. If nothing else, it does in this scary thought that if you're numb to the consequences of sin, that in and of itself is one of the most frightening consequences of sin. Because you ingest more and more poison, not realizing it. The American church is riddled with such folly. She glories in her sins. Calling them by different names. Praising them for her success. High on the drug of her sins, she doesn't realize she's killing herself. When you try to grow the church with the devil's tools... Foundation is sure to have cracks and there are flames beneath if you would see through them. But everything is made so that you're in awe of the edifice, but it will all fall down. God will let Israel taste her own sin and see that it is evil And it is bitter. Israel's chastisement is being left to find refuge in these pagan nations. Do you see how the the consequences demonstrate his contention? His contention is, you've forsaken me and you've turned to broken cisterns. So here's how I'll prove the case. I'll leave you to your cisterns. 
You can have your cistern and try to drink from it too. The sin is forsaking Yahweh. The consequence is being abandoned. Yahweh again states the charges, verse 19. The fear of me is not in you. And to demonstrate this, a series of images are brought forward in verses 20 through 25 to show that the fear of Yahweh is not in them. For, the first image, verse 20, for, long ago I broke your yoke and burst your bonds, but you said, I will not serve. The first image is that of a rebellious servant. Yahweh breaks her bonds, liberates her to serve Him. And she responds with no gratitude, but just this declaration, I will not serve. She says, I will not serve, and then... Verse 20, on every high hill and under every green tree, she bows down like a whore. She worships, she serves. The high hill, the green trees here are a reference to the Canaanite fertility cults. Uh, whenever you see Asherah, whenever you see Baal, that's what these would be. And they, the worship involved therein would involve, involve gross sexually immoral acts. And so it is now that their spiritual adultery is being manifest as physical adultery because you become what you worship. Second, Yahweh is likened to a choice vine, pure seed. Yahweh plants it, but then, verse 21, it turns wild. Third, Israel washes herself and declares herself clean and that she's not gone after bells, but her stain remains, verses 22 through 23. She's worse than the kid with chocolate all over their mouth denying that they've been in the cookie jar. The idea in this washing, this, this cleansing that they think has removed the stain, no doubt has reference to their observance of the ceremonial law. Oh, they're going on the high places. But they go to the temple too, and they make the sacrifices, and they go through all the rituals. Yahweh addressed this through Isaiah more explicitly. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feast, my soul hates. He hates their obedience. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come now. Let us reason together, says Yahweh. 
Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of Yahweh has spoken. But what we see here is that Israel doesn't want to be washed from her sin. She wants to be washed for her sin. She wants to worship Yahweh in such a way that it alleviates her conscience and makes her think that she can persist in her sinning without consequence. She wants to use her covenant husband's bath to wash up for another night on the town. And so it is that God calls her in her presumption of innocence to look down into the valley and see what she has done. Verse 23. This is likely a reference to the valley of Hinnom. A place of idolatry where we see Ahaz and Manasseh offered up their sons and sacrifice to Molech. And this call to look down into the valley prepares you for the next two images. Israel is a restless young camel running here and there. This is likely referring to the unsteady, unsure, clumsy gait of a young camel. Doesn't know where it's going. The fifth, the images of a wild female donkey in heat sniffing the wind for the scent of a jack. A a female donkey, a jenny, is especially violent when in heat. The male doesn't need to pursue because she will find them. And in light of this unbridled lust, we have another image, verse 25. Keep your feet from going unshod and your throat from thirst. So we have this, this donkey that is wildly pursuing the jack and then the idea is, don't run without shoes on your feet. Or, or perhaps the translation could be, don't run so much that your shoes wear out and you become parched with thirst. The idea is, exercise self-control. But her response to this is, it is hopeless. I've loved, foreign, I've loved foreigners, and after them, I will go. She's intoxicated and addicted to her poison. Our culture has an unbridled attitude towards sexual immorality that's growing more and more brazen. The same kind of lust of the flesh and lust of the eyes is permeating even the visible church if you have eyes to see it. Sometimes it's not so subtle. Many prominent voices are speaking of things like evangelical homosexuality as if there could be some expression of homosexuality that could jive with the gospel. And there are even the earliest indications of trajectory towards that kind of thinking within denominations like the SBC or the PCA. 
The consciences of many are so seared that they don't realize that the sin of Sodom lies on us, before us, around us. And much of the arguments along this line are justified by how it feels, desire, love. Matters not, verse 26, Israel will be shamed. Like a caught thief, she will be shamed. The leaders and all the people with them will be shamed, verse 27, whenever the gods that they cry out to fail to deliver them. The gods in whom they trust will be no saviors in their time of trouble. And these gods and their idolatry are mocked and shamed just in the way God puts this before them. You say to a tree, you are my father, and to a stone, you gave me birth. Now, on these high places, the tree would be a reference to Asherah, the female deity, and the stone to, most likely, Baal, the male entity in their fertility cults. And do you see that God intentionally flips them? You say to a tree, you are my, you'd expect mother. He says father. And to a stone, you expect father. God says mother. And so can you imagine that the Israelite would say, no, 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 God. It's the tree that's mother and the stone that's father. And God's retort would be, oh, because that makes sense. In this, they turn their backs to Yahweh and not their face. And so in their trouble, they find Yahweh's back. And He tells them, look to the face of your idols. The leaders and all the people with them are brought to shame, left to taste the bitterness of their own sin. Israel's been unfaithful. By creating a God in her own image, whom she then finds unfaithful, unreliable, unable to deliver. And then in verse 29, we read a question put to God. In essence, one has been, or an accusation at least. Why do you contend with me, Yahweh asked? So, God has been prosecuting Israel. Verse 29, evidently, Israel has the gall to bring some kind of countersuit against Yahweh. To charge God with the wrong that He's denied in verse 5. But it's Israel who's transgressed the covenant, verse 29. He has chastened, they didn't receive correction, verse 30. She has put to the sword those instruments of rebuke, His prophets. Again, verse 30. Yahweh has not been a wilderness or a land of darkness to them. Verse 31. The land itself testifies to them of who Yahweh has been. And so we ask why they say, we are free. We will come no more to you. We are free, 
Turning to their idols, they declare, we're free. Like Eve in the garden, her false gods have convinced her that Yahweh's ways are oppressive, constrictive, limiting, enslaving. Freedom is to be found in the forbidden. Freedom is to be found in my will, not God's will. And in many churches, we're being told, well, God didn't say that. What He meant was this. And thus the Word of God is stood on its head. In this, Israel is like a bride who's forgotten her attire, verse 32. Can a virgin forget her ornaments or a bride her attire? The picture would be of, of the young, the, this, the terms here are synonymous. This is the wedding day and, and she's wearing with, with glee and joy the markers that she is another's. You have to think about in the ancient world, sadly, how much more a young maid would find honor and glory in being the wife of her husband and want to wear the markers thereof. What Israel does here is intentionally cast those off so that she can prostitute herself with idols. And she's grown so effective, so proficient, so good at her whoredom that she now teaches the wicked women. Even to the wicked women you have taught your ways. You think of Israel as they're coming into the promised land and their sin at Bel Peor whenever the temple prostitutes of these pagans caused Israel to sin. And now God is saying, you're the one teaching the lessons. Not long before Josiah, we read that Manasseh led Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem astray to do more evil than the nations whom Yahweh destroyed before the people of Israel. 2 Chronicles 33. Through Ezekiel, God tells His people, even the Philistines are ashamed of your lewd behavior. And on her skirt, she carries the stain, the, the lifeblood of the innocent, the poor. They were not found breaking in. They were slain without reason. And despite the evidence on her skirts, verse 35, she declares she is innocent. His anger is turned away from him. And this, this declaration of innocence is yet another sin, a great sin that He will judge and condemn. Do you not think of how many times sinners still dead in their sins are told by the priests that they're holy for partaking of the holy sacrament of having walked an aisle or said a sinner's prayer. 
And they parade around in celebration that they are innocent whenever their guilt is great. For judgment she will be put to shame by those in whom she has trusted. Walking away with her hands on her head into captivity because Yahweh has rejected the ones in whom she trusts. Egypt, Assyria, and so she too will be brought to shame. To the professing church, And to us, as any of this rings true, know that when God takes you to court, plead guilty. Argue no case. Presume no innocence. The prosecutor is the judge. And the judge knows us. He is the one we claim as husband. Hang your head in shame or he will bow it. Repent or he will reject. What hope could we have when brought into court with such true accusations against us? It's the hope of what Jeremiah goes on to speak of as the new covenant. And I hope that that common term has taken on such weighty significance in the light of the prosecution of this broken covenant. To those who have broken covenant, He speaks of a new covenant. Saints, know this, that for those who are truly part of the new covenant, Jesus does not leave us to our sins. He not only washes us from the guilt of sin, as it is on the outside, He begins washing us all the way through. So that we're no longer worthless but we reflect the glory of our Redeemer. In Ephesians we read that Christ as husband loved the church and gave Himself up for her that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the Word so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Jesus took
took our guilt. He bore our shame that we might be holy and without blemish. Why would we turn from Him to any other? May all our idols appear audacious in light of His unsurpassed glory. May we flee from them in repentance, trusting in nothing but the blood of Christ, the only thing that can wash our sins away. May we wear the markers of our fidelity to Him, our service and obedience and worship. May we wear them with joy as our glory. May the church be the church. May Christ make His bride visible and purge her of her idolatries for the glory of His name. Let's pray. Father, again, have mercy on our souls. Thank You for the promise of the new covenant. The promise that Your covenant-keeping exceeds our covenant breaking. That Your mercy is greater than our sin. And though that there is no hope for the proud sinner, there is hope for the humble, repentant sinner. Grant repentance, God. We ask this in the name of all Your grace and mercy. In the name of Jesus, Amen.